Hi, friends. It's Tim Viegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and I'm coming to you from my living room. Yep, switching it up just a little bit because sometimes I just I I get tired of sitting at my desk facing a wall. So thank you for hitting play on this episode of Think Inclusive, where every week we bring you conversations about inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. Okay, so research is one of my favorite things. I actually enjoy reading research articles. And so if that's you too, you are going to love this episode. If it's not you, I think you are going to be very pleasantly surprised at how relevant this conversation is. Imagine if you are a parent of a child that has an individualized education program. And you are looking around for a neighborhood to move into. And you email the school principal of your potential neighborhood school and request a school tour. Once the principal realizes that your child has an IEP, what do you think will happen? That is exactly what our guest did for her research. And then she even took it a step further. Lauren Rivera, a professor at Northwestern University, is a well-respected researcher who studies discrimination in hiring practices as it affects social structures based on social class, gender, and race. Her recent research article examines the challenges of families with children with disabilities in accessing an equitable education, bringing her personal perspective as a parent of a child with disabilities to her work. Rivera's research has been featured in high-profile publications such as the Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, and now Think Inclusive. Lauren shares groundbreaking findings from her study on principles' discriminatory behavior towards families with children with disabilities. This groundbreaking research, where over 20,000 school principals in four states were contacted through a field experiment, aimed at uncovering discrimination at the very beginning of educational access, the school tour request process. Rivera's study examined the response rate to emails requesting school tours varying the presence of an individualized education program for the child in the perceived race of the parents. The results were eye-opening, revealing a pervasive pattern of discrimination against children with IEPs which was significantly more pronounced if the child was also perceived to be from a black family. The research sheds light not only on the discriminatory challenges encountered before enrollment, but also on the stressors such experiences impose on families searching for educational settings for their children. Do you believe that all children with and without disabilities deserve to reach their potential through inclusive education? If so, you'll love Brooks Publishing, the premier publisher of books and tools on early childhood, special education, communication and language, and more. Brooks Publishing has been partnering with top experts for over 30 years to bring you the best resources for your classroom, clinic, or home. To learn more, visit brookspublishing.com to browse their catalog, read their blog, and sign up for their newsletter. Brooks Publishing, helping you make a difference in the lives of all children. And just for Think Inclusive listeners, visit bit.ly slash brooks-giveaway-0224 to put your name in to win a copy of Assessing Young Children in Inclusive Settings, The Blended Practices Approach by Dr. Christy Preddy Fronsack. We will be taking names until the end of the month. After a short break, my interview with Lauren Rivera. And for free time this week, I'm going to give you some tips on finding podcasts that you may find interesting. Stick around. We'll be right back. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Lauren Rivera, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, so Lauren, you shared with us some really interesting research, and I uh, have been really excited to have you on to talk about it. And so you published a research article in the American Sociological Review called Not in My Schoolyard, Disability Discrimination in Education Access. And it showed some really surprising behavior by school principals with regard to access to f- access for families uh, with children with disabilities. So if you wouldn't mind, would you summarize that research for us? Definitely. We did a study looking at how principals respond to initial requests from families for information about a school. And in particular, we used the most common way that families across class and racial backgrounds seek out information from uh, about schools, which was a request for school tours. So we uh, emailed in a field experiment over 20,000 principals uh, in four states, and we requested a school tour. And we varied whether or not the child uh, that was mentioned uh, in the email did or did not have an IEP. And I'm happy to talk about how we signaled that, as well as whether the email came from a parent who was perceived as black or white. And we found that principals were significantly less likely to respond when they believed that the child who could potentially be in their school had an IEP. We did not designate uh, disabilities within the IEP or accommodations. And again, I'm happy to talk about that. But that gap was bigger. They were especially less likely to respond if it was uh, a child who had an IEP who had a parent who was perceived as Black. And so what our findings show us is that discrimination on the basis of both disability and race occur even before children uh, are enrolled in schools. And sometimes people ask, why does it matter a school tour? When we think about schools, in the United States, many families approach the choice of school, especially given you know school choice and these sorts of things now as a marketplace, and they're looking for a school that fits their child and can best meet their educational needs. And families, regardless of a child's learning needs or disability status, often prioritize that in deciding where to live or choosing where to send their families, to send their children to school. But that choice is even more important for children who have a disability, because even though the federal, the IDEA, which is a federal anti-discrimination law that uh, prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability status in public education, uh, mandates that kids are supposed to get what they need to to thrive. We know that's not the case. Not all schools offer all programming. Uh, not all schools actually uh, treat their mandate under the IDEA as um, something more than just 
paperwork compliance. And I'm happy to provide examples of, of particularly high risk and, and high stakes examples. But uh, that idea of finding a school that fits is even more important for kids who have specialized learning needs or have need supports in order to to learn and to stay safe. Well, first let's let's unpack the the the, the details of the study because you said twenty thousand school principals. You know, like how are these uh, schools and principals selected? Um, you said in the initial email it was more of a signaling that uh, a family uh, was was a, a, a certain racial background, and then also whether or not they have you know a disability. So how did that how did that all play out? Yeah, so we have an amazing research assistant on this project who is so patient, but we went to state databases of schools and that research assistant uh, manually (laughs) created the database and then we randomly selected uh, principals uh, from those schools. We have some exclusion criteria. Uh, They needed to be, you know, typical public schools and things like this. We excluded um, those that are more vocationally oriented or this was before the pandemic. So schools that were uh, fully virtual before the pandemic, but it represents elementary, middle, high school, the whole gamut. Um, and so we, one of the things that's important in research is that you're not cherry picking schools that might uh, conform to your hypotheses. And so it was random selection of, of every school um, in, in each of these four states. Um, so then the, the idea of signaling. So let me tell you a little bit about, this is technically an audit experiment. And let me tell you about what audit experiments are. So audit experiments have a long history um, that began in racial discrimination in housing. And how this method arose was, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, in order to understand redlining and racial discrimination in housing, um, there were studies that were conducted where you'd send identically matched individuals who are identical in everything except for race into a real estate office. And you'd say, these are my housing needs. Please show me some properties. And you'd see if the, what was shown to the person who walked into your, into your office was significantly different based off the racial uh, identity of um of that person. And we in the social psychology and economics and in my field, sociology world, have taken uh, taken that method and adapted it to correspondence. So we call them correspondence audits. And what we do is we send requests to individuals and then we measure what the difference in response is. Um, we usually send identical materials and vary them on one or two variables of interest. Now, the audit studies are more commonly done in, in employment. So my main field of expertise is hiring discrimination. We'll take a resume uh, and we'll identify something that we want to study, say race, or in my case, I do a lot of research on class or gender. And the resumes are identical other than those identity characteristics. We send them out to real employers in response to real uh, job ads, and we see who is invited to interview. Now, audit methods are most commonly done in employment, but recently in the past five or six years, we've seen a lot more in access to public administrators, public officials, and there's several studies now looking at audit studies of principals or school, other school officials. And so um, by sending the identical materials to principals and varying uh, our one or two categories of interests, we can more precisely estimate what the uh, the difference is in response is based off an identity characteristic. And we can be more sure that because I, materials are otherwise identical, that the differences we observe are indeed due to the identity characteristic rather than any right? So these audit methods are considered to be really strong ways of measuring uh, differential treatment on the basis of an identity characteristic such as race or disability status in our case. Now, to tell you a little bit about the signaling aspect of this, we went into this study and we really wanted to understand whether or not um, principals were, in a sense, steering disabled children and families away from their neighborhood. It sounds like in your field, this type of research is pretty common. But uh, my question is like, why was figuring this out for schools important to you, like as a researcher? Oh, yeah. Okay. So 
The study, the inspiration from this study came from a few places. One is that my research expertise is in discrimination. And so I study the, how the way in which we define merit, evaluate merit, and respond to different, uh, different people varies by identity characteristics. Most of my research looks at social class and gender. Um, but how this study actually came about was through my own personal experience. So I have a five-year-old daughter who has a variety of complex medical needs and disabilities. And I had a job offer to potentially move from Northwestern to uh, another institution. And in that decision, like many families, I was trying to figure out what would our lives look like for our kids. And one of those was figuring out what our, our children's schooling lives would be. And so I started emailing uh, schools as one does. And I also have an I'll soon to be eight-year-old uh, son who's able-bodied, right? And so I, when I would email schools for my son, I got emails in response really quickly. Here's our school tour date. Sure, I'm happy to talk about you. Um, but then when I sent emails for my daughter, it was radio silence. And it was really strange. And I was thinking, what is going on here? Until finally, I got a school official on the phone. And there was, given the close age at the time, my children could have gone to the same school, depending on their, their age levels. And it was an official from a public program. And they said, well, you can come tour our school if you look through the eyes of your able-bodied son, but not if you look through the eyes of your non-disabled daughter. And they, I, they, but they actually said that. Yeah. Well, they didn't say the, the ability part, but we talked about the disability part. They said, yeah, you can come if, it's, if you look through eyes of your, your son, but not your daughter. Right. Oh, and so, wow. and as someone who studies discrimination, again, people don't often understand, especially in light of recent ruling, what discrimination is. But um, discrimination, how we measure it in the social sciences is differential treatment or responses on the basis of identity characteristic. Right. It doesn't have to be conscious or intentional or things like this. Right. And so that, to me, as a researcher, there, a light went off. And I said, this is discrimination, right? And so I went to uh, my long-term co-author, Andras Tilchik, uh, who's at the University of Toronto. And I said, hey, Andras, like, I think this might be a thing. Let's see if this is more than my personal experience. And I was curious, both as a sociologist and as a parent, what was going on here. And so we embarked on this study, and I'm so fortunate to have Andres as a co-author. He's a, a wizard when it comes to audit studies. And it turns out it's a thing. It's not just us. And the reason why we varied both uh, whether or not the child had an IP as well as the race of the, of the parent, and I'm happy to talk about why we didn't signal the race of the child, is that if you take a look at the existing literature on inequalities in education and in special education in particular, this experience of students uh, in education, again, full stop, is, is dramatically shaped by race, but especially in special education. And so um, whenever you talk about the experience of children with disabilities in schools, race is one fundamental way in which children uh, may be treated differently. So we thought it was important to capture this. And indeed, we did find um, that principals were responding differently to families in these initial tour requests uh, on the basis of the perceived disability status of the child. And it was a greater uh, gap in responsiveness if they perceived that the child was black. Oh, wow. Um, and, and then, so you did this, you, you reached out to all these principals for school tours, um, but then you did something else too, and um, a little unclear. So you, you gave the same principals surveys, is that right? Or you get, no, oh, not the same principals, just principals in general. Okay. So this audit method where we send fake resumes to real employers or we send these emails to principals and we, we measure who responds are amazing for isolating discrimination from other factors as well as measuring the extent of discrimination in terms of its differential response rate. What they are less good at doing is understanding why we see the gaps in behavior or the differences in behavior we do. Right. We just see the behavior response, no response. And so we followed up with a separate study that was a survey experiment of uh, school principals. And we did not want to go back to the same principles because one of the things with the audit method is that you are responding as if you are contacting a principal as if you're a real parent. Right. And so if it, we went back to the same principles, uh, 
they would already be familiar with our email. Uh, their responses wouldn't necessarily be true reflections of, of how they might behave. Right. So we went to when we needed a fresh group of individuals. So we went to the next four largest states in terms of school enrollment. And there was also geographic diversity. Um, and we sampled um, uh, school principals and we presented them both with the same materials. We had in our experiment, we told them that it was uh, we were studying how principals evaluate various texts communications, et cetera. And the task was always sandwiched in between two other tasks so that they didn't necessarily know what we were studying. One was they had evaluated a book that was not about education and not about discrimination. And uh, the last one was a school menu. But in between, they saw the communication that we had sent to the school uh, from parents and they were randomly assigned to whether or not they saw the IP, no IP condition, the white uh, condition. Um, And we had them first decide what to do with it. So there was a drop-down menu where they could choose to respond or just click through to ignore it. Um, And we replicated the same findings in terms of they were less likely to compose a response when the child had an AP and the gap was uh, significantly larger when they believed the family was Black. We had higher response rates in general of people replying just because the cost of doing click here is less than actually offering a school tour, but the same effects were, uh, were present. And then we had them rate the child uh, in that email and the parent on a variety of factors. Because we're trying to understand the mechanisms that may produce this differential response rate. And we found that uh, they believed that uh, children with an IEP were more of a temporal, financial, and uh, otherwise resource burden on schools. Um, but, and that explained the IEP effect. But that didn't explain the racial effect. The racial effect was actually driven by perceptions of Black parents of children with IEPs who were perceived as less good school community members. They were like less likely to donate, fundraise, participate, etc. Um, and so what we talk about in the study is that when we come to intersectionality, which is what we talk about, how different identities uh, mix, the, experiment, the experience of disability varies, for example, by, by race, um, that these Black parents of children with disabilities are encountering two different types of discrimination. They're encountering less favorable perceptions of their children, that their children are a drain, perhaps, on schools, which I do not believe. I just <laughs> want to make that clear, yeah, right? But, just reporting. Uh, yes. Um, but then also they, as parents, are devalued. So, um Again, it, with sociology, a lot of these results are, are powerful and saddening, right? But the idea is that by that sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? That by sh- revealing these types of patterns, we can make people aware and hopefully craft social policy in a way to ameliorate them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's fascinating that you were able to bring in something that was so personal to you and really uh, apply it to to your research uh, and then and then get such um, really fascinating and compelling uh, evidence um, uh, th- this this work m- must have been pretty fulfilling, I would imagine. I think 
Fulfilling is the wrong word. Um, I would say okay. emotionally laborious. <laughs> and now it is interesting when research and personal identities collide. Um, again, I am an expert on discrimination. That's what I do. And I felt that I have a unique toolkit that might as well be used to, to study this. Uh, you have to be careful to make sure you're not going into a study and exhibiting confirmation bias, right? We didn't yeah. know what we were going to find. Um, and I don't think we would have predicted precisely the, the findings. We pre-registered our experiment. I'm happy to talk about what that means. But um, we expected something a little different to happen. But um, I'm glad that I can shed a light on this, both mm-hmm. for school officials and for families. Because I think qualitatively, if you talk to... You know, we did for part of the study, uh, we interviewed families whose children were disabled and they are reporting um, not only once they're in schools, but even before um, these discriminatory actions and unequal treatment that are, are really challenging and make it really hard to find appropriate educational fits, but also are just taxing, right, in terms of uh, emotional time burdens and things like this. And so it's, it's again, it's fulfilling that I can shed a light and hopefully maybe be a small step towards, uh, towards crafting some sort of change. But it is, you know, it, it is, it is, there is an emotional labor involved in demonstrating that society in yet another dimension <laughs> It's gratifying, and you know, again, being a parent of a a substantially disabled kid, like you know, it's it's a reminder that life's hard. Again, fulfilling intellectually, perhaps, but also emotionally. Yeah, no, that's that's real. That's real. Um, I don't know if this was in the study. uh, If you parse this out, but were there any? significant differences depending on the location of the school because you nope. nope yeah we we threw everything in there because we mm-hmm. thought maybe more well-resourced schools uh would exhibit this less because uh and that's often what we hear is i live in chicago and chicago public schools is a notoriously under-resourced district and it's also one that has had a lot of media attention for uh shenanigans related to to the education of uh, of disabled children and the the lower here is moved to the suburbs and people throw resources at you because they have more resources we didn't find that to hold this is a pretty universal phenomenon it mm-hmm. held across states it held across affluent schools non-affluent schools majority white schools majority non-white schools uh free or reduced price lunch it is this kind of a more general trend and why that matters is that it is really tapping something fundamental about the way in which we conceptualize and evaluate the worth of individuals based off of their disability status and about the, based on their race. Mm-hmm. So in the in the research summary article um, uh, that that's posted on Kellogg. Um, there is, you have a quote, it says, principals are the gatekeepers. They control whether to spend money um, meeting one child's IEP versus investing programs that serve a larger percentage of the student student's body, of the student body. Um, so, like, does it just all come down to whether or not the principal is, um, has the mindset to, you know, accept children is it is it just about the money? Like, what what exactly is it? So there are a couple of things going on here. Principals, I don't want this study to blame the principals, right? Mm-hmm. Principals are operating in an environment in which they're put in a really rough place. Um, the IDEA mandates that every child who has been identified with a qualified educational disability in the public education system uh, needs to receive the supports and resources they need to meet or move closer to grade level educational goals. Yet when um, when Congress authorized the IDEA, they promised to fund 40% of the cost of doing so and they've never come even close. And so, especially given an environment, we have to decrease available funding for public education in general. Um, 
principals are put in a really rough spot, right? They need more resources. Public education needs more resources. Um, so I don't want this article to be read as something that's portraying principals as um, as doing this in a irrational way, but it's still discriminatory and unfortunate. The, the other thing I want to say is that they're not the only actors here, right? There's school student service directors, there's school districts and things like this. Um, certain uh, levels of funding, et cetera, are not necessarily sent uh, by principals, but in terms of what is housed in their school, principals have a lot of authority over what happens within their doors, right? In terms of where classroom space is allocated. How are we going to spend this money? Are we going to spend it getting a specialized piece of equipment that will serve one child or investing in a program that can meet others? Um, in addition, you know, they are these informational gatekeepers. One thing that's so striking about this is that, you know, children have a wide variety of educational needs and there's no clearinghouse to look at which programs are offered where. It requires a lot of informal research to figure out where the appropriate supports are located. And principals play a key role in this because they know what happens in their doors. And you can't just go look up on the website to see, okay, where is a program that has AAC specialists? For those of you who don't know what AAC is, it's Offensive and Alternative Communication for children uh, who have communication differences. Principals know. And so the information that they provide is is really, really important. And so another thing that we might think of is that maybe there is some way to make more transparent where resources lie, Mm -hmm. um, reduce that, um, the dependence on principals. But again, principals played an important role, but they are only one agent in this whole story. And I, I think it's important that our study is not what happened once you're enrolled in school. I would love, I mean, we can draw inferences that maybe people would be less than once you're enrolled. Um, but it really is about this initial gatekeeping. But there are two other points I just want to make really quickly is that principals do actually have some discretion over who enrolls. And so there's a great study done by Annette LaRoe, who uh, just retired from the University of Pennsylvania, but who's one of the world's greatest uh, sociologists of education um, and some co-authors about uh, about public school enrollment. And she finds that in the case of limited spots, when it's a desirable district or desirable school, or if it's subject to school choice, principals actually can say, hey, I'd rather have this student rather than that. So they they can have discretion. Or in the city of Chicago, we actually have this thing called principal discretion week, that for selective enrollment schools or otherwise, there is a week where you can actually, the principal can say, hey, I'd rather have you versus you. And so it's not just that principal's only control internal resources. They do control access to information about their schools. And in some cases, they actually can have say in who does and doesn't come in. We interviewed a family who, for the research, who also, because sometimes people say, well, what if you just move into the district? Then they have to take you. Not all educational needs are met in a neighborhood school. Some districts handle it differently. But there was this one family that we interviewed and they reported going up to sign up for, I believe it was kindergarten, right? And they walked up to their neighborhood school. And the assistant principal was standing up front of the school and said, if your kid is autistic, we don't want you here, right? And stood and said, right? And so this is not, I'm not saying this is the modal interaction, but these interactions matter, yeah. right? And yeah. so, again, whether it's driven by stereotypes and animus, Uh, surrounding individuals with disabilities, which I think it is in part, or if it's driven from resource constraints, which I think it is in part, it's important to know that this is indeed discrimination. And a lot of people may not know, but I I believe it's section, I can't remember if it's the Rehabilitation Act or if it's, um, I think it is, I have to look at, there is a piece of legislation that says you can't discriminate in advertising, right, on the basis of disability status. So it is also... um, a legally suspect action. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but so quickly, I want to tell you a story <laughs> because yeah. it reminds me of a family. Uh, in, I live in Georgia. Um, uh, yeah. I, I work for MCIE, which is in Maryland, but I live in Georgia. So it's just a, you know, it's the world we live in right now with the remote work, but there's a family in Georgia and they have a daughter with Down syndrome, 
And uh, over the last couple of years, their neighborhood school said, no, your child cannot come go to your neighborhood school with, with um, the siblings of, of this little girl. Uh, she has to go to another school. And so the family revoked special education services for the child with Down syndrome. And then the school was forced to enroll the child in the neighborhood school without services. So there's more to that story, but uh, that's a, it's a great reminder that it's just, you know, it's not about the, the, the needs of the child. Uh, it, that is not the determiner of whether or not they go to their, if they're supported in their neighborhood school, it's, it's completely the willingness uh, of, of that school of the, of the district. And also one of the things I want to talk about in that is that we still in many districts, in many states, have an approach to special education where we isolate or segregate students with disabilities, regardless of their support needs. And actually, if they can be served in a general education classroom, we warehouse kids, right? And that is still uh, very common. Not to say that, you know, inclusion for children with many needs can be beneficial, but inclusion is also resource intensive. Inclusion is not, let's just put everyone together, like you said, and not give people the boards they need. (laughs) (laughs) But I think of my home district in Chicago, and I have to say my daughter's enrolled in Chicago public schools, and, you know, I am so grateful to her therapist, to her teachers. We, we found some amazing people. But it is, it is wild. She's transitioning from preschool to kindergarten, and she's a wheelchair user. There are over 600 schools in Chicago public schools. In fact, Chicago public schools serves more school children, so the saying goes, I don't know if this is backed up by fact, than all school children in the state of Nevada. And when it comes to an educational fit where the building is wheelchair accessible and they have the supports she needs, there are fewer than four schools in the whole city that are elementary schools that she could go to. And you talk about wanting to go to your neighborhood school with a sibling, right? We're talking in Chicago public schools, you know, some of these places, kids may be on a bus for five hours a day right? Two and a half hours each way, right? And this idea of where you go to school is an issue of, will I get the support I want or not I want, I should say, that I need in order to thrive, but also how does that affect the rest of the family unit? How does that affect the child if you're on a bus for five hours every day? Um, You know, it's, there's a lot at stake here that sometimes people say, oh, we'll just, when they hear the results of the studies, just go enroll in your neighborhood school. Like that moving into the catchment zone does not necessarily guarantee that you will be able to be educated there. Or Mm -hmm. if you are educated there, that you'll get the supports you need. Yeah. Um, One of my favorite parts of reading research is um, future implications. I don't know why it's just, it's, I, I love reading and hearing what researchers kind of like want to do next or looking towards the future. So what were some of those future implications? Do you have anything in mind of where you want to go next? So I have a study that is co-authored with Estella Diaz, who is a phenomenal uh, PhD student who just graduated from uh, Columbia that's going to be a postdoc at Princeton. We actually are looking at, and this is related to the Supreme Court ruling uh, from yesterday, we're looking at admissions decisions uh, to elite private schools, the ones that go pre-K through 12 that service feeders to Ivy League colleges. We are actually finding that disability status is something that they are overtly and intentionally screening on. They're private schools, so they have different obligations uh, than public schools to, to meet or to not exclude children with various disabilities, but uh, we, are, we are doing that. But I think that what I said to you about this being emotionally draining is shaping my my research agenda as well. I have two studies that are basically reaffirming that children like my daughter are othered and not welcome. And I would love to be involved in policy efforts to make education more equitable at all levels. 
But in terms of doing more research on disability discrimination, I need to take a pause for my own well-being. I always joke I should do like a study of, you know, something fun, like bounce house, an ethnography of bounce houses or birthday parties or something uplifting. (laughs) But I I think that, um, you know, I'm doing more studies, um, my traditional line of research, which is, is hiring and things like this. But I hope to continue this research on a policy basis because I think that we are doing a tremendous disservice to our children by not fully funding the IDEA. And on a broader level, you know, this is, even though I'm not going to study more disability discrimination, I'd like to bring awareness about the idea of disability discrimination uh, to a wider audience because I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. As someone who is very, very involved in DEI discussions on the basis of race, gender, class, sexual orientation, gender identity, you name it. Disability is kind of one of those that that gets left out. It's treated as, yet the stereotypes and exclusion that individuals with disabilities face in the United States are so great. And disability is one of those categories that many people will fall into their lives, will fall into it. And if we're all lucky enough to live long enough, we all will. Yet given that, you know, Individuals with disabilities in the United States are estimated to be roughly a quarter of the population at any one given time. This is an area in which drastically more attention and effort needs to be made in terms of creating both equity and inclusion. So I'd like to you know, do more work to raise awareness and things like this, but studies of the fate of kids like my daughter in schools I'm going to put a pause button on it. Yeah, that's (laughs) rough. That is rough. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, speaking of policy, uh, you know, we've had IDEA for a while. Um, Is it, I mean, do we really, should we be uh, thinking about it as we need fundamental changes in the law or is it really just the accountability piece that's missing? You know, uh, I mean, notwithstanding the funding, you know, um, who knows if we're going to get funding uh, yeah. fully fully funded? But you know there are certain aspects of IDEA that that just don't seem to be enforced. Yeah, there's a great book by Christina Bogoridi is looking at. It's called "Does Compliance Matter in Special Education?" and it's an ethnography of the provision of special education services um, in several school districts. And she finds that school districts vary whether or not they take the IDEA again, as a a paperwork burden to comply with on paper versus complying in the spirit of the law, which is actually to provide supports that enable uh, children with disabilities to access education in a way that is uh, productive and grow. Um, And the IDEA is is hard, right? Um, I think all anti-discrimination literature legislation that we have around disability status is hard. The ADA is hard. You know, it's, uh, these laws are not necessarily written in a way that is um, optimal. But we do need some sort of legal protection. But one of the things I fear, and I have to tell you that I'm not a lawyer, right? I mean, my policy implication is, like, increase the funding, right? Because right now it is perceived so much as a zero-sum game. But um, I think that... In large school districts, and this would be supported at least by journalistic accounts, right? No, and to my awareness, there's been limited academic research on it. But there's kind of this game of chicken going on between school districts and families over the IDEA, where it's like, mm, well, just sue us, right? Mm-hmm. And litigation has been, and the IDEA has various, very structured, just kind of remediation steps that you go through and, and avenues for that. But, um, you know, in places like Chicago, in places like San Diego, in places like New York, there have been um, some journalistic exposés looking at how, you know, the cost of litigation is so expensive that we could be taking that money and actually investing it into, into students. So I think, I think that the, this whole system needs to be revisited, but we do know that there have to be legal protections because in the absence of legal protections, people do the status quo. And the status quo is going to inherently favor members of historically dominant groups, including mm-hmm. those who do not have disabilities. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I'm afraid we won't be solving that, you know, tomorrow, but (laughs) (laughs) my recommendation tomorrow, one would be if you were listening to this and you get an email, uh, you know, ignore it, uh, take a moment to think what's at stake here and respond. And then also to question our priors, right? To question our assumptions and fundamentally to put yourselves in the shoes of a family who has a disabled child, right? People are just looking to do their best, right? Principals, I will also say, are are doing the best they can can with what they have. Um, I wish we could increase what principals have. So uh, we could respond to more people. But I do think shedding a light on the differential perception and treatment uh, of individuals in our society across many lines, including disability and, and race, is really important. Don't miss the mystery question right after this break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So our mystery question is, uh, oh, what's the biggest lie you once believed was true? Oh, gosh, this, this is hard. What's the biggest lie you once believed were true? You can either you could go safe or you could go controversial on this. It's totally up to you. What's the biggest lie you once? What's the biggest lie you once believed was true? Um. Hmm. Gosh, that's a hard one. We can pick another question. No, I'm happy to answer. Do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Right. Okay. The part of this question for me isn't what the biggest lie. It's that if I ever believed it was true. <laughs> and I think that most of my research is motivated by this idea that the way we define and evaluate merit is not just about individual ability, effort, or preference, right? It's about all these social structural things in terms of opportunity and who has the opportunity to develop certain things that we take as measures or indicators of skill, ability, et cetera. And whether or not we think we're influenced by social structure or situational factors, we are. And just trying to think that, like, I think that's the biggest lie we have in the United States, that, like, we can evaluate individual merit apart from where someone is seated in in social structure. So I would say that is 100% the biggest lie. I'm just trying to think if I ever bought into it. I mean, I grew up in a really bizarre family I was raised by a single parent. My dad's Puerto Rican, but my dad was a 
incarcerated. And so my mom raised me uh, and she was, you know, she was an immigrant to the U.S. She was stateless. Like, wait, we grew up, I grew up half in like a rural part of the Pacific Northwest, half in a big city in L.A. Like, I knew personally that I needed to, education was my ticket out. And she always told me, education is your ticket out, right? And I believed wholeheartedly that if I worked hard enough and I just did my all, I would get a good education and I'd be fine. And in some respects, for me, that worked out, right? I did work hard and I had the support of my teachers and things like this. But, you know, there were a lot of invisible advantages I didn't perceive I had. Like my mom worked in an elite private school. Um, and so I went there for free, right? That was a big tailwind I had in accessing this mm-hmm. world. Um, but I guess in some respects, I must have bought into this thing that if you work hard enough, it'll be all okay, right? And then... I don't know. I got, I went to undergraduate at Yale and like there was kind of a moment there where I realized social structure plays a lot. So again, I, I think that is the biggest lie in this whole meritocracy. I will, I'm going on a tangent, but meritocracy was not a serious word. It was popularized by Michael Young who wrote a satire called the myth of meritocracy. That was supposed to be a joke because of what if we distributed spots uh, in, in England on the basis of IQ scores. And by the end of this, the rich just gave the system, right? And that's pretty much the system we're at right now. So this is my long-winded answer, but uh, I would say the myth of meritocracy is the biggest lie. I'm just not quite sure if I ever fully believed it. I think I went with the motions for a while, but as a sociologist, I can tell you it's a myth. <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. Thank you for that uh, for that wealth uh, wealth of information. Uh, yeah. the, uh, so I... I I'm deciding where which way I want to go with this. I think that um, I'll go more personal. Um, so I grew up in a very religious um, home um, and believed very, it was more on the conservative end of um, not only politics, but also just um, religious belief. Uh, and one of the lies that I definitely believed um, was about, uh, uh, LGBTQ plus people. And I, I was taught in uh, a very young age that anyone who was, you know, gay or lesbian uh, were deviant and completely just, um, you couldn't trust them. You know, they, you know, I, I, I growing up as a child, you know, I was told by adults that you didn't want to meet anyone like this because they could hurt you potentially um, and, you know, even make you a certain way and all this stuff. And so I definitely was very impressionable. And and did you hear that? Yeah. You heard my, you heard my ring. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Oh, your ring. It's like a whole trumpet. It's the, uh, (laughs) I forgot that I, I'm going to, I mean, I need to turn Bluetooth off on my phone. Um, that is the uh, Hogwarts March. <laughs> ah, very, very cool. yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Um, so, oh, anyways. Um, and the reason I say that is because when I got into my teenage and adult years, um, I, I, I was a, I, um, my first job was at a photography studio in like a mall. Do do they even have those anymore? Like where you go and take pictures and they like print out pictures at the mall. I have no idea, but like back in the (laughs) nineties, that's what I did. Going into a mall. I haven't been into a mall. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, my boss at the time, he, he was a, he's a, a gay man. And, um, I was so scared Right. Because, uh, you know, I was told that, you know, quote unquote, these people would, you know, do quote unquote, these things. And he's just a normal dude, you know, just a guy and wonderful boss. So kind. And his um, his this was in California. uh, And at the time, uh, you know, uh, marriage equality wasn't even a thing, you know, but they got married and they said that they were husband, you know, they were husbands. Um, even though legally they didn't have that status. And so anyways, to make a, a long story very short, uh, 
Um, I have definitely evolved on that, but I, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like you believe something about someone uh, because of preconceived ideas that are completely false and based on, based on nothing except historically we have said that these people are these things, you know, and that really has informed, you know, my view of, you know, racial uh, background, disability, um, socioeconomic status, everything. So that's probably one of the biggest lies that I no longer believe. No, thank you for sharing. Can I follow up on that for a moment? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the, your story reminds me of what we know from psychology about how we can start to break down these barriers. And the most substantiated way is through what we call intergroup contact, which is what you described. It's actually having contact with people who are different from us and in a very personalized way in which you have to work together with them. And we see that someone is actually a person rather than a member of an outgroup that we may have imagined ideas about. And you know, to bring it back to disability, one of the reasons why it's important to have inclusion, right, is one, we don't want to make predetermined judgments that because you have a disability, you are inherently less capable to to master this curriculum, right? But the other is so that, and I don't want to make it sound like children like my daughter are just little tokens to... (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) But too often, individuals with disabilities, especially children, are segregated and warehoused apart from everyone else. And this affects the perceptions that our next generation is having, right? If you never actually meet someone with a disability and you actually see that, oh, they're actually a person, right? That informs our viewpoints for later. And we also see this in the private education world in which there is discrimination on the basis of disability status, you know, how educators view children with any type of of support needs. But what's been really cool is that this summer, my uh, daughter and my son are going to the same camp and with an inclusion aid. um, And it's been really interesting to see how the typical kids are responding to my daughter. She's so visibly different. And at first they had lots of questions about how can she do this? How can she not do this? And it's been a week and now they're really interacting with her. She's having the best time of her life. Um, You know, they're, they're doing activities together and we can see even in this that like when they approach another child uh, at the camp who has a wheelchair, that openness is there. That that when you were talking, that this idea of those people, right? Mm-hmm. And we often see that for outgroups. And when we have a chance to get to know that those people are are not scary, that are they're human fundamentally, um, we can start to change perceptions not only of individuals but also social categories. Lauren Rivera, thank you so much for spending some time on Think Inclusive. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That chime means, you guessed it, free time. (laughs) This week, let's talk about podcasts. You love them. I love them. But sometimes it's hard finding good ones. Have you ever tried Googling to find a podcast episode? It's, uh, it's not easy. So I've got three tips for you. And they're totally for free. It will cost you absolutely nothing. Okay, close to nothing. Uh, at most, it's going to cost you your email. But here's the first one. Sign up for a podcast recommendation newsletter like Earbuds Podcast Collective. Earbuds was created by my friend and co-host of another podcast I produce, Trailer Park, the podcast trailer podcast, Ariel Nissenblatt. Earbuds recommends five podcasts all related to a theme. So the most recent edition features Black Perspectives podcast recommendations for Black History Month. Sign up right now or after you finish this episode to Earbuds Podcast Collective. You will not regret it. The second one is to go to podchaser.com and use their search feature to find podcast episodes that you will find interesting. You can use any keywords you want. You can use particular names of guests that you want to check out. So for instance, if you put my name, Tim Viegas, into Podchaser, 
you can see all the times I've been a guest on other podcasts. It's quite a powerful tool. And finally, ask your friends, family, or colleagues what they are listening to. You never know what might be in their podcast feed. Usually, I am listening to uh, about a dozen podcasts at, at any point, and I don't always remember to tell people about them unless they ask me. So this is your chance to ask somebody what they're listening to. And of course, I want you to share this podcast with people you know. You know, word of mouth is still a huge way people find out about podcasts. But even more importantly, I want more people to listen to podcasts in general. So if you can get one person that's never listened to a podcast, listen to one episode of something, that's a win. And I'll take my wins where I can get them. That's it for this episode of Think Inclusive. You've been a wonderful listener. I am so grateful to create these episodes for you. Do you want to share the love with us? Find us on the socials and say hi. We are pretty much everywhere at think underscore inclusive. Or you can just search for the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education. Think Inclusive is written, edited, sound designed, mixed, and mastered by me, Tim Viegas, and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. Hi, Miles, if you're listening. Additional music from Melody. That's M-E-L-O-D dot I-E if you're interested in checking them out. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. I have to apologize. Um, of course, like a gardener is coming to our neighbor's house and there's a leaf blower. So if at any point it gets um, loud, let me know. This is the best room in our house for internet. No problem. It's, or- it, yeah. Most people these days are totally fine with, you know, you know, dogs barking and okay. children crying and leaf blowers. So yeah. I'm not too worried. So if you don't mind, let's just jump in. Let's do it. All right. From MCIE.